Now, if you'll open the Bible tonight to the book of Timothy, first book of Timothy, chapter 1, again reading at verse 11, break in the middle of a dissertation about the usages of the law, the Apostle Paul starts verse 11 this way, according, and the better rendering of it, according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The most solemn thing that any child of God will ever face is suggested to us in verse 11. I believe that most of us people who claim to believe in the grace of God also desperately need to remember that the Apostle Paul wasn't guilty like we are of pouring water in a barrel that had no bottom. But he was given a twofold ministry. He was a minister of the grace of God, the gospel of God's grace, but he's also a minister of the church. And he understood that the two go together. Living in a day like we do, a great controversy about what the gospel is, it behooves every professing child of God to take seriously the truth that the whole of the New Testament is a protest against the division between what we call the preacher and the people. In the New Testament, every child of God has a ministry. Every one of us are to be heralds and proclaimers of the gospel. I wish we believed that. We don't. But it's so. It's so. Now, I said all that to say this, that there isn't a child of God between the eternities that hadn't better face seriously his part in the proclamation of the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which was committed to your trust. It is not simply for what we call public preachers. I think the world will continue to go to hell as long as we follow the Catholics and the dear old Puritans who knew more about the gospel a minute than we'll ever know. But I think knew nothing about the church much. I think it desperately, desperately, desperately urges that every human being that dares to claim that in their heads and in their hearts they actually believe that salvation is of the Lord, brother, you need to become a flaming witness of that. It will not do to keep that to yourself. This is the need of the hour. I wonder if I come sit down beside you, talk with you privately just a little while, are you in on this business? Have you taken seriously the fact that the gospel 
of the glory of the blessed God has been committed to your trust. Surely the public preacher has to face that. I've tried to face it for these years. There isn't anything, as I said, between the eternities that challenges this preacher quite so much as being told in the Word of God that I'm to say, move over, Paul. I have to get in on this, too. You can't have it by yourself. This great gospel of the glory of a blessed God has been committed to my trust. If I keep it, I'll lose it. If I spread it, I'll gain it. You know anything that's calculated to make life worth living, something more than making a living and preparing for old age, just getting up in the morning and going to bed at night. You know anything comparable to having a fire, having entrusted to us the good news of the glory of the blessed God. In the book of Exodus, at chapter 33, we find the first mention of the glory of God. I have called your attention, and I'm sure it's something that all of you know, by heart of the law first mentioned. When young preachers come to me, and I've had some come, and ask that I help them if I might, as much as I could, to find out what the gospel is, I immediately turn to the 33rd chapter of Exodus, where in verse 18, a man by the name of Moses made a request of Almighty God. Surely if God is a living person and not a creed, surely if he's alive, and if the good news about his son is the good news of that which brings glory to God, Surely if the Old Testament that speaks so much about the Shekinah glory that will fill the temple and the glory that clothed Adam and Eve before they sinned, surely the Old and the New Testament that speaks so much about glory, the glory of God, surely if he's alive, the greatest thing on earth, that could happen to any eternity-bound human being would be to get a glimpse of that glory. And Moses said, Lord, I beg you, show me thy glory. And the Lord said, All right, I will. Here it is. But before I show it to you, let me remind you, in verse 20 he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Tell you what I'm going to do, Moses. Behold, there's a place by me. Thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, that I'll put thee in a cliff of the rock, I'll cover thee with my hand as I pass by. 
and I'll take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. What the Lord said before he said, Now, Moses, I'm going to grant your request the best I can. But I can't answer it, can't grant it a hundred percent. Kid you. It kid you. We sing that old song, Oh, that will be glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face, that shall be glory for me. And we are told when the Lord comes back, we shall see him as he is. If we did it now with undimmed view, couldn't take it. And that look, as we see him as he really is, complete our salvation, we shall be like him. We shall be like him because we've seen him as he is. I'm just fumbling for words. I'm talking about the most wonderful thing between the eternities tonight, just to get a glimpse of this glory that's so wonderful that the Lord will say, I'll have to hide you in this rock now. And as I passed by, I said, I put my hand in front of you so you can't see. As I've just about gone out of seeing distance, I removed my hand and let you get a little glimpse of my glory. That's all you can take. According to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. <laughs> man told me thirty some odd years ago, he said, Robson there, let's see you enter the ministry. That's haunted me ever since. One day I'd love to be able to preach on the glory of God. Surely if I could see his glory. Just as it passes by, just a little glimpse of it, just the hind parts. It'll meet every need I've got, encourage my faith, put unction in my voice, tears in my heart, joy on the way to heaven, the glory of God. Glory of God seen in the gospel of God concerning his son. That which we take for granted is so wonderful. This generation's never got a glimpse of the glory in the cross of Christ or in his throne. The gospel of God's glory is the gospel of God's marvelous grace best definition for grace that I've ever found is in spite of. God saves people in spite of ten million things. God gets glory in spite of us. I never have found a man that I thought God could use. He uses them in spite of. I've never preached in the church to deserve the single drop of blessing from God. I never have. If you get any blessing, it's in spite of Oh, the depth of the grace of God. And yet it's in his grace that he shows us a little glimpse of his glory. 
Now, Moses, are you ready? I got you in the cleft of the rock, and I got my hand before you so you can't see me, and cause you did you die, and we'll get let a little glimpse of my glory. Filter through. Here it is. Verse 19. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. The gospel of the glory of God has three points. It's the story of the goodness of God. It's the story of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a story of the fact, it's a proclamation of the fact that God must do right and he may show mercy. If I have studied anything in the word of God, try to come up with what the scriptures teach. It's the sovereign mercy of a thrice holy God. Long since I learned that a gospel that does not soak with the goodness of God is not the gospel of God. Long since I learned that a gospel that doesn't come and proclaim the utter authority, absolute authority over everything that rides and wriggles, men, women, events, and everything else, it does not give the preeminence and rest all glory and all authority in the only begotten Son of God. It cannot be the gospel of God's glory. I can remember on Sunday mornings preachers in this town crying out in their pulpits, Ralph Barnard's a liar. You can't have Jesus as Savior without having him as Lord. But I'm not a liar. I was not a liar then. The gospel that preaches Jesus any other place and sitting on a throne, exercising all authority and power and dominion, is not the gospel of the glory of God. Oh, I will proclaim the name that's the authority of the Lord. Then the gospel brings us into that realm of mystery. The gospel is not the gospel if it does not treat of God as a God who is gracious to whom he will. And the gospel is not the gospel of God if it doesn't preach about a God who shows mercy to whom he will. Long since, I learned that it isn't doctrine that's the center of controversy. I learned that we've come to the, to the hot issue, whether or not we shall preach a gospel that leaves men and women with one thing they can brag about. 
or whether we'll preach a gospel. That build churches full of men and women who can see from their heart, but God forbid that I should blow receive in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel that allows one person to glory one way is not the gospel of the glory of God. I do not come tonight and profess to be able to enter in the depth of this last expression I'll show grace be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I'll show mercy to whom I will show mercy I don't know whether I understand that or not I just know it's the language of the Apostle Paul who repeats it time after time after time. And it's his way of reducing men and women to where they'll face three truths. First, God saved me, suffering, mercy is not owed to men. It is not something that men deserve. It is not something that men can demand of God. If it is, it's no longer mercy. All my days I've preached in a so-called religious or church or Christian with a question mark around an atmosphere and a generation where what we call the gospel has spawned a nation. And churches that actually believe that every human being is entitled to be the object of God's divine mercy. That is burned and taught and ingrained and buried in mankind. And this is the offense of the gospel of the glory of God. For it is desperately true that if any man is entitled to God's mercy, then there is no such thing as mercy. For mercy is something that undeserving people receive. But if they deserve it, they're no longer candidates. I know that when the Apostle Paul will say, it is not of him that willeth, or of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. That's deep water there, brother. But he's trying to tell men and women that if they have obtained mercy like Paul said he did, God gave it to him, and he gave it to him. He didn't pay it to him. He gave it to him, for he must do right. He won't be God. He may show mercy. I know that when Moses is told by Almighty God one part of the gospel of the glory of God is to tell men and women what seems to be terribly offensive, that salvation is not a swap it's not something that you can bargain for. It's not something you can deserve. It's not something you can pay for. No, sir, it's a gift. And God bestows his mercy as he wills, as he will. Now, if a sinner insists on justice, he may get it. But if he insists on justice, according to the word of God, hell will be his portion. The only hope for a sinner 
is to bow to God's judgment upon him and cast himself on the mercy of court and plead just one thing and with an empty hand stand there in the presence of God saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst, thou canst. I never shall forget, yes, since down in South Carolina, I uh, preached for about, oh, maybe a week in a congregation and uh, came up to the second Sunday, I remember now, and the young pastor came to me and said, Brother Barton, would you, uh, would you meet with the congregation this afternoon at three o'clock and let us ask you some questions? By that time, the Lord had given me the people's hearts, and they were beginning to listen to me. But my message was so different, they said, and they were torn all to pieces. And he said, we don't want to fuss with you, Brother Barn. We want to listen to you. But uh, my people want to ask questions. Maybe maybe if you could explain some things. Just, just got them all balled up. I said, why, sure, I'll be delighted to come. Got that afternoon, little house is packed full. And the question, they've got but one question. The pastor asked the first question. He said, Brother Barnum, Brother Barnum, don't God give everybody a chance to be saved? And I said, Salvation is not by chance. Salvation is by God's grace. And that wound up the question. That answered all the difficulties. Salvation in God giving everybody a square deal and a fair chance, salvation to God. In spite of giving men and women salvation, the gift of eternal life, we get that saved. It'll unravel all the other problems. God says, I'll show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And the Apostle Paul said, I was a persecutor and I was a blasphemer and I was injurious, but God called me into the ministry and he saved me. And the whole thing is explainable, according to Paul, not by something he did, but by something he received. He said the difference was that I obtained mercy. I obtained, I didn't have it, didn't deserve it, couldn't buy it, couldn't earn it. God showed mercy to me, and it didn't make him mad. He is glad that he'd obtained mercy, that he'd obtained mercy. Mercy, saving mercy, saving mercy must be obtained from a living Lord. Saving mercy is not in a jar that you can uncap. It's not in a swimming pool you can get your dipper and dip in. It is in the nail-scarred hands of the man in glory. And a man cannot obtain sovereign saving mercy without doing business with the crucified Son of God who's not dead now, but he's alive forevermore. He's the one that deals with sinners. He's the one. We ought to be careful lest we cuss out the Catholics and preach the same gospel. No, no, you find a good Catholic, he's more orthodox than any of you people are. 
He believes in the cross of Christ from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, but he knows nothing about a living Lord. A living Lord. But he did Christ unless God raised him and made him a life-giving spirit. Then there's no power between the eternities that can give life to a dead sinner. But the Bible says that Adam was a living soul and Christ has been in A.D.E. made a life-giving spirit. And the sovereign mercy of God now is under control of the living Lord. This generation of church members going to split hell wide open believing a creed or a doctrine and not be enjoined to a living Lord and him posing on the mercy of God and taking it for granted but you cannot obtain mercy as Paul said he did unless you're confronted in the scriptures in the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit with the same risen Lord he was he's on his road to Damascus and he met a person unless the Holy Spirit makes the living of the Son of God leap up between the pages of the New Testament and you're brought face to face with him. You'll never be able to say with Paul, I obtain mercy. I obtain mercy. It's not a creed to believe. It's a blessing to be received. Oh, you have to do business with the living Lord to obtain mercy. To obtain mercy. I've got a third thing to say about this mercy. The scriptures say that he'll show mercy to whom he will. The apostle Paul and I, I do not believe the man has yet lived who really yet understands the ninth chapter of Romans. I know Brother John Calvin missed it. I'm smart enough to know that. But he tackled it. He didn't make fun of it like to do today. Well, that's some chapter. And there's a verse in that chapter that says that he shows mercy to whom he will, and whom he wills he hurt. I'm telling you, that's some verse of Scripture. That's some verse of Scripture. And I know I haven't got sense enough to plumb its depths, but just to read it sort of takes me down a little notch off my cocky high horse and makes me understand that if any man on earth ever has the slightest reason to believe he's obtained mercy, he ought to be mighty thankful, brother, because Almighty God professes that some people he'll harden. And the Lord, when he was here, said as the Father, Give life to whom he will, even so the Son raises from the dead whom he will. That's a scary verse of Scripture. It's not of him that runneth a will that seems to sort of limit my great big will and what all would happen if I do like I ought to do. It's not of him that willeth or runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. What do those Scriptures mean? Well, it certainly means this. That my salvation's in his hands. I've got to face that. It certainly means that I can't pay for it. I deserve it. But God bless your heart, it means more than that. It means the offer of mercy. 
is as wide as the heart of Almighty God. I do not believe that a single one of the scriptures I've read tonight is meant to discourage anybody except somebody's trying to tell God what they think he ought to do. I believe that these scriptures, instead of being discouraging, open wide and teach that the wickedest sinner out of hell may rightly become a candidate for the mercy of God. If I pick up a Bible and it claims to be that which I'm to live by and die by, and salvation was extended only the people that I decided to extend it to, that would be a scary proposition. But if I can preach a mercy that God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same God, who turned his back on his own son when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And God Almighty turned his back on him, and the earth shook, and the sun refused to shine in protest. A God who will do that! I'm not afraid to trust the wideness of his mercy, and I'm not afraid to tell the wickedness that if the disposition of the mercy of God is up to God, that's good news, brother. He'll save folks that I wouldn't save. I tell them to go on to hell. Oh, his mercy would be wider than all of ours put together. Whatever else may be said about the love of God is greater far than any of us have ever been able to tell. And we need not think we'll embarrass God if we try to put limits on to it. Hear me? You know what these strange texts teach this poor preacher? Bless your dear heart. They teach me that this side of God's rejection and this side of death, God's mercy flows mighty freely in the direction of anybody on God's earth who's the slightest bit interested and not being a subject of God's justice, but being a candidate for the grace and mercy of God. There's a wideness in God's mercy because he's a God of love. That's right, my friend. I read in the Word of God where it talks about O Ralph Barnard, sheep are dead, dead in trespasses and sin. And my daddy... The devil had a ring in my nose. I was a child of disobedience. I was a child of wrath, and I followed the course, the awful anti-Christian spirit of this present age. But I read in the next verse, But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, he got plenty. He got plenty for his great love wherewith he loved us. But God, but God, when I read scriptures like he'll show mercy to whom he will, they do not discourage me. But I see, but God, you get God in on it, brother. If God dispensing mercy, if God showing grace, he don't do it like we would, brother. He gives it and shows it to people who don't deserve it. 
the best thing that can say about any human being is that he has no claims on God if he hadn't and no recognize that he's a candidate for the mercy of God I read in the 10th chapter of Romans God is rich unto all who call on him I tell you that's a precious verse after I read some of the scriptures I've read and they kind of make me wonder oh I tell you right now this thing maybe 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 I better not be so cocky and be telling God how to run his business maybe I better just humble myself and say Lord here I am on your hand I got no claims on you and I know that if I had any claims on you then that'd just be justice and there wouldn't be any mercy and I read some scriptures like that and then I let Paul tell me but for God who is And I can preach to men and women that can't deserve salvation and can't buy salvation and can't argue salvation, but bless God, they could become callers. Nothing this side of hell could stop them if they would. And I read that God is rich toward all who call on him. And I come back and say to men and women, let you be encouraged. If God will save a man like the wicked king Manasseh, you wouldn't have trouble with you. If he saved a fellow like Saul of Tarsus, who was a persecutor, went around twisting the arms of people, trying to get them to blaspheme Christ, he wouldn't have any trouble with you. Oh, I like to preach the gospel of the glory of God. He gets glory! By showing mercy to the worst and the wickedest of sinners and there's hope for all I never forget a poor fallen woman in Canada we were out ringing doorbells up there they hadn't had anybody converted in nine years they were mighty orthodox mighty separate mighty dead and I kept after them until they began I said you you all get acquainted with folks and uh, they took me seriously twin below zero and I'd gone out with the deacon we just going house to house and others other places got a little something starting the other churches in town come and having dances in that church building to keep their people from coming to the meeting but the Lord began to overrule and we I came to a little wicked gate going up the house and I unlatched the gate I started to go in the deacon said brother preacher don't go in there I said, why not? Oh, he said, I wouldn't want to say, but don't go in there. And I said, well, why not? But, oh, he said, I couldn't tell you, but please don't go in there. And I said, well, I'm going. He said, it'll ruin the meeting if you go in. And I said, why? He said, well, preacher, I, I, that's, that, that, that's the most notorious woman in this section of Canada. Oh, said if said if you went in there, it'd be terrible. I said, I'm going. I went and knocked on the door, and a nice-looking woman, not yet betrayed by her sinful life, came to the door and said hello big boy and I said howdy I said I'm a preacher and I'm holding meetings down here at the church and I've come to invite you to come hear me preach tonight she began to laugh I said it's no joke I said you really preaching I said yes I said I believe you are I said yes I'm, I'm from the south and I'm preaching here oh she said yeah I've heard about that fellow from the south and you're him oh yes I said yeah uh, she said uh, you know who I am 
I said, yeah, I've been told. Who they? I said, they tell me you're the most notorious woman in the section of Kansas. She said, I guess that's right. She said, you mean you want me to come up at that church building tonight? I said, I double dog dare you. I cheat dog dare you to come. I want to preach to you. She said, why, if I came up there, why, it would shock them to death. I said, well, they need a good shock, and I want you to promise me you'll come. And bless God, she did. She did. I've never seen the Holy Spirit challenged when he didn't knock a home run. And I preached that night. And before we could get started singing the invitation song, here she came, just running down to the front, fell prostrate down there, and just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And that's why she stood up, tears running down her cheeks, glory of God on her countenance, and she witnessed a mighty good confession. And the people, what I'm a Welsh people, out singingest people I've ever heard, they began to just quietly sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. Save the wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And they had an old 80-year-old woman there, looked like a spring chicken, just as feisty as she could be. And she is the mother Israel of all that section, fine woman. And I wondered... What that nice gang of church members going to do? There's that prostitute, ex-prostitute standing there claiming the grace of God that done his work in Christ in her life. Tears running down her cheeks. She just stood there while they sang. Nobody moved. And I looked back. I saw that old mother of Israel pull her glasses up and wipe her eyes. Then pretty soon she pulled them off, took her handkerchief and wiped her eyes. Then pretty soon here she came. And she marched like the state the matron she was. Down to the front, put her arms around that ex Magdalene, kissed her on both cheeks, and loudly enough so the congregation could hear her, she said, Welcome, sister. Welcome, sister. Praise God at the foot of the cross, objects of the mercy of God, the best and the worst woman in town, in the same crowd. The difference, the mercy of God, which because his blessed son hung on a cross, he's able and willing to show to the worst sinner that ever stayed out of hell a little while. Mercy, God's sovereign mercy. And when that woman did that, the heavens were melted and the people's hearts were broken. And sinners all over the congregation began to cry out. And once again, the glory and the wonder of that simple scripture, who Soever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at 
www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.